And our gospel reading today is taken from uh, the gospel, the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12, reading verses 13 to 21. <clears throat> Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And that man thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will then say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, as we approach your word, we, um, we bow our hearts before you and we confess our fundamental dependence upon your Holy Spirit to be the teacher. And so God, now apply your truth and your grace to us and help us to see Jesus, we pray. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and today the meditation of all of our hearts, God, by your grace, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking today at the last uh, of the Ten Commandments. This is the conclusion of our series. And uh, our text from Deuteronomy 5 reads as follows. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Covetousness. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, I'll be a Baptist, but a great Baptist, he writes that this is perhaps the most devastating of all the commandments. But it's devastating for us in a very certain kind of way today. I have a friend who is a very strong uh, Dante fan, and he likes to remind me periodically that the vision of purgatory in Dante's Divine Comedy, it's a vision of hope, and it's a vision of mounting gladness. And these aren't adjectives that we would normally ascribe to purgatory, hope and gladness. Now, as a priest in the Anglican Church of, the, of North America, I'm forbidden to recommend the doctrine of purgatory in any way whatsoever. It says in our articles, Article 22, it's a fun thing, vainly invented, grounded upon, grounded upon no warranty of Scripture, but rather repugnant to the Word of God. <laughs> so there we have it. But I can speak to you, and I must speak to you today about the purgatorial. That is the purging flames, the heat, the crucible of God's work in our lives, because surely that's true. In Malachi 3, we read about the prophetic vision of who Christ is and what Christ will be. 
And scripture tells us that Christ is a refiner's fire. And he refines God's people like silver and gold. And part of this refining process, this purgatorial heat, which is very uncomfortable, is God's law searching us and searing us and separating us to God's holiness by the work of Christ the refiner. And as Begg says, of all the Ten Commandments, the tenth, it comes to us with the most heat. It's the most difficult commandment for us to hear from the mouth of our Lord. The rich young ruler, you remember, he was quite content to hear all those commandments. Oh Lord, all these I know and I do. And then Jesus alludes to the tenth. And the rich young ruler, he walks away with great sadness. It's the most difficult command to hear because of its relationship to this area of contentment. William Ames is a name that few of you will know, but he was a very important Puritan theologian in the 17th century. And Ames wrote a very important book called The Marrow of Theology. And whenever you get to the marrow of something, as Corey knows, whenever you get to the marrow, you get to something very tasty and very important. Thomas Goodwin called The Marrow of Theology one of the best books that's been written since the Apostles' times. And Ames, he ends his theological treatise with a section on contentment. He says that contentment is the virtue that the Tenth Commandment demands. Covetousness and contentment, they are intimately related. To not covet is to be content. And to not be content, it's to covet. Well, what's contentment, you ask? Well... Ames says that contentment is two things. First of all, contentment is the acquiescence of our minds to the lot God has given us. It's the acquiescence of our minds to the lot that God has given us. And secondly, it is joy for the prosperity of our neighbor as if it were our own prosperity. Acquiescence to what God has given us Joy in the prosperity of our neighbor. These two qualities, this contentment, Ames says, this is the perfection of the godly man. This is the perfection of the godly woman. Godliness with contentment is great gain, the scriptures say. And you see, contentment is the great goal of the gospel. Being content in God. Being content in God's rule over our lives. Being content with what God decides to give us and what God decides not to give us. And being content with what God and how God rules over our neighbor's lives. What he decides to give them and what God decides not to give them. And Ames writes this, he says, the closer you are to this contentment, the closer you are to perfection. This is why he writes that the command against covetousness, it is the most perfect command. It's the very first of our duties towards our neighbor, and it's the foundation of every other duty. Well, why then is the tenth commandment the last, we ask? Ames says it's last because this virtue of contentment of contentment in our current state of corruption, it's the last we arrive to, and it's the hardest to obey. 
Brothers and sisters, if you would be perfect, which, by the way, the Lord commands us, without equivocation, be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. If you would be perfect, be content. Don't covet. Or as Jesus put it, if you would be perfect, sell what you have and give to the poor and follow me. Jesus attaches perfection to contentment. Now we need to feel the purgatorial heat of this command today. It's a refiner's fire of the Lord. And we may, we, we need to be made to feel very uncomfortable and aware of our own proclivity to covetousness today. We need the Lord to make us know what a coveter we are. We need to know how we covet a man's goods. How easily we covet a man's station in, his, in, his, in life. How we want his opportunities, his gifts, his looks, his position, his friends, his belongings. How we inwardly twist and writhe because those things belong to him or to her. And they don't belong to us. And then we need to let this command search us and to show us how at heart we resent God for the things he's given them and not given us. And rather than being thankful at all times, we grumble and we complain. And unless, brothers and sisters, you have felt the difficulty of this command and have been convicted of your own covetousness, and have repented and articulately confessed to the Lord that you are a coveter, then you are not on the path to perfection as the Lord would have you be. The broken heart, Scripture tells us, is the healed heart. The Lord is near to those that are of a broken heart, and he saves such as be of a contrite spirit. And brothers and sisters, the Tenth Commandment, it's the most difficult command to hear. It touches us at such a tender spot because it does this. It reveals our distaste for being governed by God. And it reveals our distaste for our neighbor's prosperity, which is essentially distaste for the summary of the law. To love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors even as we love ourselves. Covetousness says this, it says God should treat me better than he does, which is a very swift and comprehensive rejection of commandments one to four. And then covetousness says this, it says I inwardly resent my neighbor's happiness, which is a swift and comprehensive negation of commandments six or five through nine. Covetousness is a disease. Packer calls it the root of all social evils, and covetousness is the root of trouble in the church. What causes fights and quarrels among you? St. James asks. Is it not because you desire to have, and you do not get? You covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight, and you quarrel. And let me ask you today, when is the last time you have repented to the Lord of covetousness. Paul says in Romans 7 that it was the one sin that woke him up to his desperately sinful condition. It's the one sin that made Paul cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am. And covetousness, it faces us all. Covetousness indwells us all. It makes us wretched 
as surely as it made Paul wretched. And it's so far down deep inside of each and every one of us today that it proves Jeremiah 17.9 to be true. The human heart today, my brothers and sisters, is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? The prophet says. Well, God can understand it. And God, through the light of his law and through his covenant love for his people in Jesus Christ, having purchased us with his own blood, he wants today to expose our sin. And he wants to heal our sin. And he wants to lead us higher and higher on this path of perfection towards contentment. So today what I want to do, after that long, rather lengthy intro, I want to make four points about covetousness that I hope and I trust will aid us in our struggle against it. The first point is an observation, and the remaining uh, three points are points of clarification. So point number one. First of all, I find it very interesting that in our reading today of the story of Achan, what we have are two parallel pictures in the Bible that warn us against the disease of covetousness. The first picture, as we saw today, it takes place just after the people of God, they have crossed the River Jordan, and they have come into the promised land of Canaan, and here, God destroys a family very early on, namely Achan's, because of this sin of covetousness. And the second picture takes place just after the people of God have crossed a new Jordan, the Jordan of baptism in Jesus, and they've come into the promised land of God's spiritual kingdom, and again, at the very beginning of a new epoch, God destroys another family, namely Ananias and Sapphira, once again because of the sin of covetousness. And if that doesn't alarm the people of God, I don't know what will. Covetousness is a disease of such seriousness in the community of God's people that the Sovereign Lord is compelled to make an example of it and to root it out, lest it infect the others. Covetousness is a disease. It spreads, it destroys, it ruins churches. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that this disease, it pierces the heart with many pains. And there are some scriptures, my brothers and sisters, that are given to the people of God simply to make us afraid. This is what happened after Ananias and Sapphira were killed. We read that the fear of God, it fell upon the whole community. And when Calvin observes this history of Achan and his family, including the children, who are caught up in the stoning and the burning for Achan's sin, Calvin can only say that he has to stop his mouth and acknowledge the weakness of his mind and submit to God's incomprehensible counsel and to be afraid. Alistair Begg, he shares about an advertisement he read in the Wall Street Journal. It's an ad for Aston Martin uh, automobiles, if you know what that is. And he reads the ad as follows. He spells it out. It said this. The ad goes, It's one thing to trundle by in a Bentley, a Jaguar, or a Mercedes. Everyone in your neighborhood has one of those. It's quite, at least in their neighborhood, not mine, it's quite another thing to come in for a landing in your Lagonda. Get an Aston Martin and demoralize your neighbor. So the ad went. 
Now you see, the world treats covetousness with a laugh and with a sneer. The Bible, with these two pictures prefacing the entrance into God's kingdom, tells us that covetousness is no laughing matter. Point number one. Secondly, the command against covetousness is not a command against human desire. God has made us plainly to want. We are creatures of appetite. We are creatures of yearning. We want food. We want beer. We want sex. We want companionship. We want shelter. We want knowledge, meaning, and purpose. And these appetites are right because they're an expression of our creatureliness. Being a creature with our wants honors the Creator. Denying our creatureliness in some kind of stoic way actually robs God of His glory. To say that we have no wants or to have no hungers or to have no appetites robs God of the opportunity to supply our needs. And so when Scripture says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and that's true, there Scripture commends a man's desire for a woman. When Scripture bids us to pray for daily bread, it commends our desire for those things that benefit our well-being. It honors God when we ask Him for the things that we desire. Desire is a gift. Hunger is a sign of life. I recall very vividly in my mom's last days when she was being ravaged by a terrible disease, she looked at me and she said, John, don't ever underestimate the value of an appetite. If we hunger for bread, it's a good thing. But hunger can be misdirected. And desire, Scripture says, can be death. If we hunger for food, we're going to thrive. If we hunger for poison, we will die. And another man's wife is poison. Another man's goods is poison. And resenting another man's gifts or position or place in life is poison. And being ungrateful towards God for where he has sovereignly placed you, for what doors he has opened to you and what doors he has closed to you, this is poison. And like a corrosive agent, it will eat you away, both body and soul. It's one thing to bring our genuine desires and requests to the Lord. It's quite another to inwardly seethe against the Lord and to seethe against others. That's the wrong kind of appetite. Three, thirdly, the command against covetousness reveals the inward and the spiritual nature of the law. Now, it's a huge mistake to think that the Old Testament was all about outward observance, while the New Testament, under a new legislation, makes the royal law a matter of the heart. When Jesus says, But I say unto you, whoever looks at a woman has committed sin, he is not legislating new law, but he is rightly interpreting and teaching the law in light of the tenth commandment. The tenth commandment tells us that the law, it's a matter of the heart. We sin when we want our neighbor's wife even before we do anything about it. We sin when we want our neighbor's donkey even before we hop the fence to take it. David sinned 
when he lusted after Bathsheba from the rooftop, even before he made that most egregious error by taking another man's wife. The Tenth Commandment, you see, tells us that whenever we want something that is not right for us, we have sinned against God. And when we want our neighbor dead, well, we just kind of wish that they just weren't around at all. Just that they would go poof and vanish. And we wouldn't have to deal with them. We sin, even if we do nothing outwardly. The law has always been a matter of the heart. And the reason Jesus points this out is because he knows the Ten Commandments so well. Because, in fact, Jesus wrote these commandments with his own finger on Sinai. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, even though it's an inward thing and the Tenth Commandment tells us this, what goes on in the inside, it eventually comes out. And you may think you're concealing your envy for what someone else has, but chances are that envy is oozing out of you. And the envy comes out in your body language which we just can't hide. And the envy and the discontent and the malice of heart comes out of your conversation because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. <laughs> it's the law of God. You cannot avoid that. We can't help ourselves. It's an inward thing. Number three. Fourthly and finally, the answer to covetousness is not in our trying harder to not be covetous. <clears throat> I've just got to focus more on not being envious, you say. I've got to focus more on not resenting what my neighbor has and wishing that it were mine. I just need to try harder to want my neighbor's prosperity. That's a, that's a counsel of despair. That response is like struggling harder and harder when you fall into quicksand. The more you struggle, the more you're going to sink. And the answer to our sin and to the sin of covetousness is always and only Jesus Christ. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul knows that Christ alone delivers us from the law's condemnation. And Paul knows that Christ alone, he so fills us with his Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 5, that he empowers our minds to set them on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit, you say? The things of the Spirit for Paul is obedience to God. Loving God more than we love anything else and loving our neighbors as ourselves. These are the things of the Spirit. And Christ comes to us in Malachi 3, and he promises to be the fuller salt for his people. We cannot clean ourselves. We have no bar of soap to do that. We have no kind of anti-covetousness soap to get and to rub ourselves off. Christ alone is the soap. And he promises... He promises to work that purity of contentment. He promises to work the satisfying longing for God to be all in all. You see, that contentment is the only answer. Content in Christ to have God rule us. Content in Christ to have God place us. Content to have Him provide for us. Content to have Him put us in need. Listen to this, my brothers and sisters. Content to have God place us in obscurity. Content to be known, content to be unknown. 
Content to be used, content to be not used. Content to have God elevate us and promote us, content to have God lower and demote us. Content simply in God's sovereign care. Content in that first commandment that God is all in all. For we are assured that Father knows best. Content to be who he wants us to be. Even if it's just a doorkeeper in the house of God. Content to have the Lord in his lordship elevate others while we remain behind. Content to have God exalt us or humble us. In whatever situation we are in, with Jesus' own eyes to that first commandment, with loving and grateful eyes to God's lordship over us, with eyes to his fame and eyes to his honor, learning to be content because we know one day God will be praised, one day God will be known, one day God will be exalted, and that's where our hope lies, not in ourselves. In Christ, knowing how to be brought low and knowing how to abound. Listen, knowing the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance abundance and need. Saying with Christ the Father, here I am. I delight to do your will and I shall be content to be made poor so that others may be rich. If only, Father, it will bring you praise and learning to say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things. I can do all these feats of contentment to Christ who gives me strength. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the only answer to our constant struggle to obey the Tenth Commandment. It's Jesus. He's the only answer. And He gives Himself freely to everyone who will just call upon His name. And so if you've heard His word today, And if you've thought and felt of your covetousness, as the Word of God has explained it, then I'm going to ask you to take a moment now with me, who am also deeply convicted of sin, to call upon the name of the Lord. We pray, dear Lord Jesus Christ, I confess that I am a lawbreaker. I have coveted my neighbor's goods and my neighbor's position. I have not been content in your dealings with me. And I'm sorry for my sin. Lord Jesus, enter my life with a power that loves God above all. And enter my life with a power that can make me genuinely want my neighbor's prosperity. Oh God, in Christ's name, amen.